land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment where we take a plain English look at the big three property news stories of the week. This week, I'm joined by Mr. Owen Rask. Welcome, sir. How's your week been? Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. It's been it's been great. Uh, I always love bringing down the average on the show, so I appreciate you having me on. Well, the average age, yeah. Did you have an earthquake <laughs> in uh, Melbourne this week? We did, but I managed to dodge that by being on an airplane. So um, I was flying to Sydney, um, so I, I was okay. But uh, yeah, we had an aftershock as well just yesterday, and um, my wife slept through it. So yeah, we uh, we didn't really feel it, but apparently it's a yeah. big one. I hate those. I used to live in um, East Timor, where obviously they get mm. quite a lot of earthquakes, and the building rates probably aren't quite the same as in Melbourne. Uh, it used <laughs> to make me very twitchy. Also. Uh, Went to a wedding in Christchurch where we were staying probably the only hotel that remains with uh, 10 or 12 stories. And uh, yeah, I was pretty pleased to leave, to be honest, <laughs> the amount of oh, yeah. earthquakes that they've had. But uh, yeah, Melbourne's mm. usually pretty light on, I guess. Uh, yeah, it yeah. is. And um, yeah, you feel for anyone that's in those places like Christchurch, it's a pretty harrowing experience. Yeah, the rebuild has taken forever. I was really taken aback by how long that has taken. And uh, mm. obviously... Uh, urban planning to take into account as well. So, uh, mm. yeah, well, thanks for joining everyone this week. Uh, so every Sunday at 7 a.m., you will find our Two Cents podcast episode waiting for you in your podcast player. Uh, these are a bit of fun where each week we cover the big three news stories of the week. We sometimes throw in a few of your questions as well. So always send us your feedback and questions. And we'll try and weave those in as we go along. So uh, anything mm. else, um, Owen, before we kick off? No, I'm just going to ask you how your week's been. Um, well, yeah, it's been good. I've been actually over in England this week. Uh, uh, some really nice uh, early summer weather. I've actually been at the beach a fair bit, so trying to top up the tan. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, this is this sounds completely ridiculous. But you remember about two and a half years ago, I got stuck overseas 
uh, during COVID, couldn't get back into Australia, so we ended up buying a beach hut, which uh, mm. is kind of crazy. I've never been in a beach hut in my entire life, but I just bought one on a whim. I guess uh, <laughs> I figured it'd be something that might hold its value. And uh, But now, of course, I'm trying to get the kids to use it at every available opportunity to get our money's worth. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. That's yeah, great. in fact, uh, well, there's so many people actually doing staycations now instead of going overseas, the demand for uh, coastal property and they, these kind of things has gone through the roof. There's just not enough caravans, not enough places for people to stay. So I think it's the high airfares and high energy costs are keeping people at home a bit more. Mm. So, yeah, yes, fair. interesting times. Uh, it's been a strange few years in no end of ways, and I guess that's some of the stuff we'll talk about this week. Um, so I think uh, these are the three big news stories this week. So firstly, land tax pains. Uh, so uh, Victorian-themed uh, news piece this week. Um, the Victorian budget has gone pretty hard against property investors, so we'll talk a little bit about what that might mean for your portfolio. Uh, secondly, build to rent. It's practically every day I log on and there's another build to rent story, um, different players coming into the space. And I think um, a lot of people don't really have a handle on what the build to rent sector means and what it's going to mean in Australia, so let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, and then thirdly, the listing environment. There's just so little good quality stock mm. on the market for sale. Uh, so we're going to have a bit of a deep dive into why more people aren't selling and when that might change if it does. Um, so does that sound okay as a bit of a rundown? Yeah, yeah. I actually, um, I think maybe just to quickly chuck thing, something in here, Pete, uh, we did have a question that came through and it was actually a, a question delivered to you, mate. There's some lovely words. Someone said they love your thoughts. Uh, and uh, they said they own a few investment properties in Victoria. Um, and they've got some young kids. Uh, and th their original plan was to pay off all the property debt and then just have the rental income, I guess. Um, but they've said in a question... They, they basically said with all the new investment property changes, laws, taxes, they've pushed us too far. And it just doesn't seem to add up anymore when I compare it to the other asset classes. And that's even with a confident assumption of good capital growth in property into the future. Pete, I'd love your thoughts on this. Do you think, uh, do you ever think about this for yourself? Do you think the pendulum will have to start to swing back in favor of the landlord if these changes continue to plague the rental crisis? Um, so this is obviously related to some of the changes that we saw um, with the Victorian budget and the changes that have come. So that's a good framing for the real world experience, I think, of what we're about to talk about. Yeah, I was just smiling there because I saw you abbreviated the full comment. It said, Pete, I love your thoughts because you're a rare unit and you're so <laughs> open and educated on all asset classes. I've never worked out whether that's a, an Australian slang um, insult or a compliment. I'll, I'm going to take it as a compliment. <laughs> it's, it's a compliment, so, a rare unit. <laughs> yeah, in a good or bad way, I don't know. So well, why don't we have a look first at the, what the changes announced yeah. in the Victorian budget were then we can relate it back to the question from uh, uh, Dan who wrote in there. So um, yeah, thanks Dan for the question. So yes, okay. Big picture is Victoria uh, government has had a budget in uh, deep deficit um, for some time. Uh, big debts in Victoria it wasn't um, helped, of course, by uh, the pandemic, uh, which impacted all of the states um, around Australia. And we've had, had this ongoing issue that. Um, the, the mining and resources states in Australia often bring in 
uh, big revenues and and tax revenues. But uh, New South Wales, Victoria um, have had various issues in terms of debts and uh, New South Wales has tackled it with some asset sales. So uh, the Victorian government is introducing a higher land tax for property investors. So um, essentially, property investors will be slightly with extra land tax charges. So from the start of next year, um, there'll be a $975 annual fee on land holdings of more than 300K and an additional 0.1% for every dollar of land value above that. So uh, the threshold for land tax is also uh, to be lowered from 300,000 down to 50,000. So it captures more property investors. Mm. So I guess, like, um, I, go, I, mean, I guess the thing here is um, it's just a push really to bring the budget uh, back after some significant debts that have been run up through the COVID pandemic. Um, I think there's always a bit of a timing issue with these things. I think when the rental market is soft, um, then there might not be so much impact on the rental market because there's plenty of choice for renters. At the moment, though, we've got very, very low uh, rental vacancies. And I think most likely you'll see that landlords either choose to sell or they will try and pass on those costs to renters, which um, they may have more success at this stage in the cycle when the rental market's already very tight. And um, there's, this is sort of... Uh, uh, well, talking of Aussie uh, slang, there's uh, basically a stoush in the media. Uh, people say <laughs> that uh, you know the, the property council say, well, this is going to end up uh, with landlords uh, essentially trying to pass on uh, these costs to renters. But the uh, Victorian Council of Social Services is saying under no circumstances should that be the case. And there's all this back and forth. And uh, I think as some people have pointed out, new landlords or new investors they don't have to invest in Victoria if they're going to do residential property. They might look at, say, New, New South Wales or Queensland instead if uh, the land tax pushes them away. So I guess that's the big picture. Um, mm. Did you uh, catch any more on that story at all? Yeah, I think that what's interesting about this is so a lot of people maybe who don't invest or maybe are yet to invest probably don't realise the holding costs of an investment property. Um, and so this is basically just widening that so that um, you you pay more of a general land tax on a lot of the things that you um, have, you know, holding in. Um, and I think it, what's interesting about this, Pete, is it relates back to that question um, because there is a trade-off, as you say, not just in states but also in asset classes. So people could, like you and I are well-versed in this, people could ch choose their additional dollars or their incremental savings from here on out. Maybe it goes somewhere else and that only exacerbates the rental crisis. Uh, but you, you made a mention there about passing on the costs. You know, the, we still live in a capitalistic world, uh, which because we know it works. And um, at the end of the day, unfortunately in Australia, this is just my opinion, uh, renters are price takers, not price makers. So until we see that dynamic balance, it would only I would only assume that this type of thing increases the cost for renters. Um, I was chatting to someone this week who had uh, three investment properties and he was obviously very frustrated by this. Um, and he said, well, I, I, I can't afford it. So um, he's actually looking at the selling them now just because he can't, he can't afford the ongoing costs and he's worried about more regulation coming. So that's my kind of anecdotal sample size of just a few from speaking with people this past week. But um, I don't know, I just... Simon uh, Christian Mark was on the, the show recently as well, 
Uh, and he said that, you know, one of his, from a demographics perspective, one of his insights is probably that we'll see more of this type of thing happen. I don't know if that's fair, but that's was kind of what I got from that podcast with Chris. I think the, the thing in the current environment is, yeah, an additional 0.1%, um, even if you've got, let's say, $500,000 of land value that's taxable, look, it's 500 bucks. It doesn't sound like a lot, but then you've got a, a $975 fee. Um, but I think the mm. thing is the current environment is you've seen mortgage rates, most people in Australia, either on short-term fixed rate mortgages or most people are just on variable rate mortgages. So the mortgage cost has gone up very, mm. very sharply from a year ago. Uh, you put this on top, uh, things like repairs and maintenance, well, those costs have gone up as well. So, uh, yes, rents are rising. But um, I think one of the things, as you just pointed out, with resi property, there's always bits and pieces of costs that um, people don't necessarily take into account when they first buy. There's things like um, insurance policies for landlords mm. you have to renew each year, um, things like rates and repairs and vacancies, and it all chips away. And this is just another thing on top of everything else, uh, which is, as you said, some people will – uh, they've seen their mortgage go up and now they've got this additional cost and some people will be tipped over into selling um, but I think some new investors might just decide um, it's not for them and they're going to look elsewhere and this kind of feeds on I guess to the question so uh, chap has got five investment properties with his wife aged 34 with two young kids um, properties are all freestanding houses Geelong, Ballarat and the place of residence in Geelong um, so I guess the question is, um, the original plan was clearly go hard into investment property and then at some point retire the debt and live off the passive income. But now uh, thinking, well, might just be better off selling up the properties and going into um, ETFs because you can get passive income from dividends. And in the current mm. situation, pretty strong passive income for the numbers provided. Um, and yes, so circling back to the question, is this something I think about? Uh, well, I suppose um, let's just talk in very general terms to begin with. I think it's fair to say that residential property is, a, is not a good asset class for generating passive income for the aforementioned reasons. There's always little bits and pieces of costs. Mm. There's property management, uh, all the other things that we mentioned just before. And even if the rental yield is, let's say, for the sake of argument, around 4%. By the time you've taken off all those other costs, um, even a mortgage-free property is not a very tax-efficient vehicle and it's just not a very good way to generate passive income. Commercial property, to some degree, might be a bit more of a, an appropriate vehicle. It's, resi property is really all about growing your equity and mm -hmm. growing your net worth. Um, now, the stock market, which is more... Uh, your area of expertise than mine. Um, but in Australia in particular, the dividends can be quite strong. Uh, we've got um, uh, dividend imputation and franking mm. credits. So it's a, it's a very tax-friendly environment for people wanting to generate a passive income. Uh, so I would say if you're looking for a passive income in the end game, that's actually a better vehicle for most people. Um, do, you find, Pete, do you find that people start like this uh, scenario here, do you find a lot of people start in the property to leverage up that equity, that net worth, as you say, and then do make slowly make that shift across? Transition. To, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, there's different ways to do it. Some people like to sell some of their properties and retire the debt and keep the others. 
Uh, some people just get out of property altogether and go across into stocks. Um, I, my personal experience, and I've been coaching for oh, a dozen years or so, I think people actually quite find it quite difficult to go from property into stocks uh, quickly because it's a different asset class. You've got yeah. more volatility. Some people just aren't used to watching the daily uh, swings and arrows of fortune that you can get in the stock market. Uh, so it often makes sense for people to transition slowly or at least build up an awareness and a familiarity with how the stock market works. Um, I think it's difficult to go from one extreme to the other very quickly. Uh, so, look, there's no right or wrong answer to this question. Um, I think uh, you know, there's sometimes a good argument to do both, uh, some property and some shares. Mm. Um, I, I think um, my best guess is that some of the land taxes will be passed on uh, to higher rents in Victoria over the next couple of years. Um, but, yes, I think it's really down to personal choice. You know, you, you want to get the passive income sooner, in which case you might switch across to the stock market. Don't forget, if you're selling investment properties, you do have capital gains tax to pay, mm. uh, which might work out at, you know, it depends on your personal circumstances, but it often uh, works out to be around 20% or so. Uh, so that's a painful hit to take. Um, mm. And uh, sometimes people like to try and defer that until later in the piece. Um, so it's really a numbers game and there's no right or wrong on mm. this. Uh, but, I mean, it's, this is indicative of the uh, the issue at hand is that some people are thinking, well, if you're going to keep making it harder and harder for landlords, I might just go and do something else. Uh, there's been mm. a lot of changes to tenant rules as well over recent years, which um, have generally been in favour of the tenants over landlord. Yeah, yeah, it has. Um, <clears throat> and this, be real, like this is a, this is probably, even though we're talking about Victoria here, something that people right around the country will be uh, experiencing to one extent or another. So um, it's something that everyone should keep in mind. Like this, so on my side of the fence, typically with like the outside of property, um, we see this with the superannuation environment too, where, Regulatory change is one of those things that's constant. So um, it's 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 something that everyone should be mindful of the longer their investment horizon. And as you said, it's not all or nothing, which is really important. I think that a lot of people do become quite tribal or parochial where they think this is my thing and this is what I do. Uh, hopefully we can uh, get the message across that it's a very broad wealth creation strategy. And Pete's first book, uh, I think it was your first book, Pete Getting Financial Grip was really like insightful with this as well. So it's one of the more frustrating things actually is the regulatory framework changing all the time. Uh, Queensland is oh, yeah. particularly uh, changeable on this. It seems like every month we've got a new idea of uh, whether it's land tax or changes to tenant rules and uh, they're always throwing ideas around. And these are asset classes where in real estate, you know, you're really trying to make a 10-year decision. It's very difficult for people to mm. make a commitment if they don't even know what the rules are going to be next month, let alone in 10 years' time. Um, mm. So it, it's not really helping. Um, we've already got chronic rental shortages in parts of the southeast Queensland and um, you know, changing the rules every five minutes <laughs> is not actually helping people to um, to invest and add to the, the rental supply. So anyway, um, yeah, so I think um, there was always going to be a tax uh, hits of some sort to balance mm. the books in Victoria and it looks like property investors in the firing line this time around. So I guess this mm. story will continue and I think it's a bit of a watch this space as well because New South Wales will have some 
significant decisions to make, new government there, um, a lot of campaigning about maybe shifting away from stamp duty and towards land tax. So we'll have to see how that one plays out as well. Mm. And uh, this is actually a great segue into our next talking point, which is... Um, Do love a good segue. We, uh, yes. We, uh, well, we try at least to make these things <laughs> seamless, but uh, it doesn't always work out. Now, build to rent, um, which is a topic that it seems to be now finally starting to catch on, people. Isn't it, Just Yeah, it's, um, I subscribe to a number of uh, newsletters and uh, yeah, it seems like every morning I open the inbox and it's uh, another player coming into the space in Australia. So this kind of makes sense. We've got a shortage of rental properties. Uh, the federal budget uh, changed the foreign withholding tax. Um, so that means investors from overseas might come into the space. But let's just start uh, at the high level if you're not familiar with what the concept of build to rent actually is. So typically in Australia, what developers have done is they'll build a new development, whether it's a, a block of units or something of that nature, and they'll sell off uh, the individual apartments. Mm. They're often sold off the plan. And uh, historically, uh, foreign investors have bought a fair chunk of those, uh, less so recently. Uh, but the build-to-rent um, asset class is something that we've seen a lot of in uh, Britain over the past 10 years, and that's um, generally where you get big corporate or institutional investors they're building a development, and just as the name implies, uh, to rent out uh, on longer-term leases uh, to uh, private individuals. So uh, typically you can get, a, say, for example, a three-year lease. Um, you can sign up uh, with a corporate landlord, and um, if it goes well, you should get a, a high-quality product uh, responsive uh, to repairs and maintenance issues. And the main thing is you're getting security of tenure, one of the big complaints mm. in the private rental market is if the landlord changes their mind or if there's a change to the budget, for example, and they decide to sell up, well, that's really unhelpful for a family if they're trying to rent in a certain school zone or you know, they're trying to build a life. Um, our corporate landlord is planning to own these assets for 10 plus years, so you shouldn't have those same issues. Um, so in theory, it should work pretty nicely for people who want to rent for, say, a three-plus-year period. Mm. Did, but you've mentioned the the UK experience here. Um, do, are there any things, like, would you say that's been successful there, the build-to-rent move? I would say it's been mixed. I, I think, um, I mean, it's growing exponentially. So I think at the last count there's about 80,000 homes or so. But if you include right. what's under construction and the future pipeline, you're getting close to a quarter of a million. Um, and if you actually, you know, I suppose in the concept, uh, the context of a 70 million population, it doesn't sound much. But if you look at the flow of new homes coming onto the market, it's probably about 20% um, across the UK. And in London, it's very high, near a 40% going forward. So, like, it's, it's becoming mm. quite significant. I think um, for some people, it's worked well. Um, I think it doesn't always deliver what people expect, though. The, the average rents tend to be actually higher than what else what else is generally available on the market, partly because these are newer properties with good amenities and so on, uh, but also because, don't forget, an institutional investor, they really wanted a double-digit return on their capital to compensate for the risk of development. Mm. So they're probably wanting you know, an initial rental yield of, say, 4%, and um, uh, just as an example, I was tracking 
um, a built-to-rent development in Manchester in the UK that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one's called Duet, and they were saying, uh, won't mention the the developer, but the, the initial rental yield was around 3.5%, and then it went up to 39 and they're expecting it to go up to 4 next year. And this is one of the things that makes housing attractive as an asset class is that the rents can go up with inflation, mm. and they are doing. Um, so it's not necessarily the silver bullet to affordable rentals because the corporate landlord, of course, needs a profit. They need a return mm. on their money. So they're not really incentivized to provide much at the lower end. Mm. When you think about it from the developer's perspective, they're taking all of the risk, right? If you think about the duration at which they have to have their capital or their money exposed, they've got to build it, then they've got to rent it um, versus, say, if they just build it and sell it, um, which may give the, it gives them a lot more control, I would seem. So, uh, and that's why I asked that because I feel like it's quite a challenging thing to do in practice. Um, there are so many puts and takes. And if we look at the commercial experience, commercial property, that is, you know, fixed increases typically based on CPI or whatever. And those can be quite onerous because of the risk involved for the landlords. So- I think um, from what I've observed, I think that there's a lot of developments in Australia that are proposed that are relatively small. But it, often I think it, to make these things work well, they need to be done at scale. Uh, ideally, probably 500 plus units in a development or maybe 1,500 in a precinct. I think then it makes it a bit easier to uh, get some scale and leverage behind the project. Mm. I think sometimes with the smaller uh, smaller developments, it's, it's harder to make it all stack up. Um, and so there's been some downsides as well. I think the, the main one is really the, the, just the total ignorance of social housing. Uh, there was a situation in London in Elephantine Castle where there's a big build-to-rent development going in, but 4,000 social housing units were demolished. And it's like, well, yes, okay, we're providing new housing supply here, but what about the the, the waiting list mm. for social housing, which is for uh, – it's been a, an ongoing challenge in, in Britain just as it has in Australia. So I think um, yes, we that could be a, an issue down under because the – the appetite to develop um, in the public sector, there was a period where it was done under the Kevin Rudd government during the um, GFC stimulus, but really we're just not building much on the social mm-hmm. housing side. And um, I think that's a potential risk if we ignore the affordable rentals uh, in the big rush to provide this sort of upmarket build-to-rent stock. Mm. And. We did hear, and Chris and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, that the Aussie government, the federal government, is looking to stimulate as much of this as possible through what seems to be an alignment between federal, state and local governments and potentially giving more power to states in order to align those incentives to unlock land and get them developed for these types of projects. Um, Where do you see a lot of it, I guess, coming like are there particular locations or states that might be exposed to this more than others melbourne will be the the leader initially um and to some degree brisbane sydney is sometimes harder to get these projects to stack up because the the land prices are high um, mm. but if you look what's um, already sort of proposed uh macquarie park stockland uh, are going to develop there um Greystar, uh, so some of these overseas um, institutions, places like Fitzroy, Kensington in Melbourne, 
and also did a little bit in South Australia and Brisbane as well. I think if you look, um, if you're looking at a share of the pie, probably Melbourne will get about half of the bill to rent stock. And um, Sydney and Brisbane will be much of the rest. Um, so mm. um, Brisbane is probably a bit of a smaller market, and Sydney it's a little bit harder to get these things up and running. Uh, so I think Melbourne will be uh, the main one. Uh, in terms of locations and product type, there has been there have been some examples in the UK of taking existing dwellings and converting them, but they've been harder to come by. So mostly we're talking new tower blocks close to transport hubs where uh, zoning uh, development might be a little bit easier and mm. there might be a bit more of, um, sort of capacity to build big developments. And, uh, yeah, we mostly be in the unit space. Uh, there's been less done in sort of the townhouse and uh, detached house space because that's harder to do at scale. Mm. I remember um, taking the bullet train in Tokyo one time on the way to the ski fields and, it was half an hour, an hour out of the city. So I'll let you do the math on how far out we were. And you'd look from the train line and you just see three or four story buildings as far as you can see. Um, and they all just kind of gather around these train lines and these hubs that connect through the city. Um, I'm not to say that Melbourne or Sydney or anything's going to be like that, but um, you can see how these things form through time, right? And those are the areas that make a lot of sense. We've got connections. The land is red, like readily available to go up, um, which is which is quite interesting. So I think, I think it's kind um, of like a watch the space. Yeah, definitely. And it, look, it will take off. In, in the UK, it's taken 10 years, but now we've got a really big pipeline. Australia, it's still early days, probably over the next few years. We'll start to see more of these developments, but not big numbers. Um, but I think if, uh, a useful way to think about it, though, is if, if you think back um, a decade ago, a lot of developers were building really small units uh, for renters, but they mm. were being sold to mainly to investors, uh, non-residents, people from mainland China. There was a lot of investment from China. I think this is going to replace that because the foreign investors are basically taxed out of the market at the moment. Um, so that's going to be replaced by, well, if you look at what's sort of proposed and being talked about, uh, Stockland and Macquarie Park, Mervac wants to build 5,000 units, Lend-Lease, I think Scape have mentioned they want to do 10,000. Uh, Coronation, a Durskinville in Sydney. And then we've got people like Greystar, Sentinel, and some of the overseas institutions. Uh, so if you add it all up over three or four years, we might start to get some meaningful numbers through. Uh, but to some degree, it's only going to replace what we used to build for investors, uh, but mm. funded instead by, I guess, private investors from overseas largely. Maybe good news if you're a tradie. Uh, as well. <laughs> well, that's, that is one of the interesting questions is actually, have we got the capacity? You know, there's uh, mm. building and development companies going bust all over the place. We've got big infrastructure projects as well uh, and some resources construction. Um, so, yes, we can approve a lot of stuff, but um, yeah, at the moment, materials costs are high. There's shortages in the trade space. So, um, actually, how quickly we can build is a whole other question as, as well. Uh, so, mm. Yeah, plenty going on, that's for sure, and definitely I watch this space. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third story, Pete, is about the low housing stock. Um, I asked you off air, how do I pull this data? And there are different ways to do that. But it would seem that the total property listings in Australia are at more than a decade low, which would maybe help to explain why prices have been resilient across the board. Um, 
And I just think this is a fascinating thing. And Chris uh, and you and Chris and everyone on this podcast has talked about it actually, how in an environment like this, we would see, you know, constrained supply and the impact that that could have on prices means that a lot of the forecasters were probably a bit off the mark uh, in terms of their predictions for property prices. How do you see this falling? Well, the interesting question is why why aren't people selling? Why aren't they listing? Um, mm. I suppose at one level we've still got essentially full employment. Unemployment rate is, what, 3.7%. Mm. Uh, for landlords, it's pretty easy to find a tenant at the moment and rents are going up 10 20%. Um, so there's a lot of people who aren't forced sellers. Um, I was chatting to uh, Cameron Kusher this week, and that's another episode uh, that will go out. So I went... Um, uh, I won't do a spoiler on that, but he did make a, a good point, and that is that often uh, people don't want to sell if they can't find something else to move into, and the market can get a bit gummed up. You know, people are actually a bit afraid mm. to sell and find they can't get back in or can't find an appropriate place uh, to move into. Um, now, there is a seasonality thing as well because normally we have the sort of spring selling season in Australia, and uh, May June is not typically a big time of year for uh, listing. Uh, so maybe there will be a bit of a pickup as the year goes on. Um, I think one of the really interesting things as well is that um, you would think as the population gets bigger, you'll get more properties for sale mm. um, just on a numbers basis. But uh, as we said, we were looking back at the numbers from 2011, 2012, but practically double the number of properties listed as compared to today. So um, you can argue about why that's the case. I think um, stamp duty is a big part of it. I think um, prices are higher. The costs of actually moving are quite significant now. A lot of people would rather just stay in place and renovate if they can. Um, and I think um, uh, certainly one of the points that Cameron raised was, well, the past decade we've had a building boom. A lot of first-time buyers went into new apartments and there's, there's actually less going on in the second-hand or um, mm. sort of resale space. So there's a few different factors, but I think at the moment it's a bit of a Pavlovian reaction. Every downturn in Australia has been followed by a boom, and I think a lot of people are like, well, if prices are off their highs, I'm not going to sell. I think it could be mm. as simple as that. Do you, how, do you have data? I'm sorry if I'm catching you off the top of your head here, Pete, um, and I know it's late slash early where you are. Um, do you have any uh, idea around like how often a property comes to market? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, CoreLogic actually have done some really good research on this. And actually, yeah, people are now um, staying put for longer or, or owning properties for longer. Uh, so not mm. just owner-occupiers but also investors. Uh, it's more so the case for houses where people will generally own for around a decade now. Uh, but actually mm. even for units and apartments, the average hold period especially in the big cities, um, it's getting on towards the decade. So uh, people used to sell more often, um, but mm. now uh, people are taking a longer-term view. I, I think the transaction costs would have to be a part of that. I think um, mm. stamp duties were designed with much lower uh, property prices in mind, but governments say uh, it's too much of a good thing. <laughs> it's hard to give, give up those uh, juicy taxes, and you know, the stamp duty keeps on climbing, and there's not much pushback against that. Um, so mm. I think a lot of people are discouraged uh, from uh, buying and selling too often now because the uh, the cost of doing so uh, can be quite punitive. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking about is like how we've stretched that holding period and the impact that that has on listings um, could be meaningful because, and let's be honest, a lot of people that buy quality properties probably don't want to sell, not just for the frictional cost, but they probably just are happy to accumulate in a low, what we've had historically, at least a low interest rate environment. So interesting. I find this really interesting how, because it's not like say, like we mentioned ETFs before from my side of the fence where you just create more units <laughs> and you just, you add more, right? And it just, it, there's no problem with that. Um, whereas we can't just do that. We can't just switch it on and off, right? As, as we've discussed. So um I feel like this could be interesting to watch over the next two two to three months and see if this, is, in terms of seasonality, does start to bounce back or if people continue to hunker down and um, avoid that frictional cost. One really of the big uh, narratives that we've seen over the years is that when you get a downturn, there's a rush for the exits and then that really exacerbates the downturn and then the ship really hits the fan. Um, mm. But we just have not seen that. Um, I mm. think um, you know we, we're not in a... A deep recession situation. You know, it's not like it's. Um, you know, we we talk a lot about recession risk at the moment, but not every recession is two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, nine. Um, you know, some recessions are shallow. At the moment, uh, well, employment's at a record high. So, um, you know, it's not like we've got uh, hundreds of thousands of people being punted out of work or anything like that. And mm. you know, most people are hanging on. I think um, there will be some. People that come under mortgage stress, no doubt, because mortgage rates have gone up and so quickly. But at the moment, anyway, most people um, are able to hang on and most people are choosing to. So um, definitely one to watch. Uh, but at the mm. moment, not many forced sellers. Mm. And I think I, I think it was last week where you talked about, uh, it may have been last week, where you talked about unemployment and the potential for that to roll over. Um, and that could be an interesting number to watch as well because, uh, if it, that seems to be a bit of a linchpin in maybe in some of these numbers where we get the stress, uh, maybe it becomes severe stress. Um, but interesting to watch, very interesting to watch this one. This is probably the most interesting of the three stories for me, Pete, to be honest, uh, over the next, in the short term at least, longer term build to rent is a fascinating story that I'm going to watch very closely as an investor on both sides of the fence. Yeah, a lot of people talk about uh, mortgage stress, but the number one indicator of mortgage stress is whether or not people have a job. You know, most mm. often... Uh, people don't default on properties and mortgages if they're fully employed. Um, but if you mm. lose a job and you find it hard to find a new one, that's when uh, the stress really builds. And at the moment, that's not an issue. But you know, we've got immigration picking up now. Uh, the economy is slowing, certainly. Um, so definitely uh, so something to keep an eye on as the year goes on. The forecasts are always pretty rosy, but um, things can change pretty quickly. Mm. Mm, absolutely. So, Pete, we've got three big stories from this week, which is the land tax changes, not just in Melbourne, but I guess people are mindful of regulation, generally speaking. Uh, we've got the build to rent pipeline. It's interesting to hear your experience uh, in Britain and uh, how that may apply to the early days of what we're seeing seeded in Australia. Uh, and of course, the low stock and listings that are available on the market. Um, I just, I love listening to these updates every week, Pete. I find them so interesting because it gives me a real-world perspective of what's happening in the economy. Yeah, I enjoy doing them too. Yeah, they uh, it's always good to uh, keep an eye on what's going on. And, of course, there's never any shortage of uh, property news stories to trawl through in the media. So it's not like we're short of um, subject matter. But uh, that having been said, we do like to uh, get your feedback and questions. So mm. uh, do check out the show notes, um, send any questions, and we'll try to address those 
the episodes as we go forward. So um, yeah, we, we get mm. some good comments uh, and feedback. So uh, keep them coming. Mm. And you can find Pete uh, at Pete Wargen on Twitter. Great following Pete Wargen uh, blogspot as well. Um, follow him on Twitter. It's where I get my daily economic updates, mate. I've got to admit, I, I love it. So um, you'll find all the links in the show notes if you are listening. If you haven't already got in contact with Pete, reach out to him. Um, he is a rare unit, so uh, he does. <laughs> he does. Eclectic news feed, yes. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. not all uh, property and finance. I, I, uh, I often find myself typing replies and comments and then uh, uh, think three times and then delete. It's uh, <laughs> Nothing good comes of that website, but it's uh, it's all good fun. And uh, yeah, yes, yeah. and don't forget, you should definitely subscribe for the Rask podcast on your favourite podcast player. And, of Absolutely. course, um, these go out on YouTube as well, so definitely check us out there. Yeah, yeah, jump on YouTube and have a watch if you want to see our, our heads for radio on YouTube. Um, <laughs> we'd, love, we'd love to see you over there. But, mate, this is great fun, so uh, thanks for having me on this week. Pleasure. Cheers, mate. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.